All righty then. Dan, do not close those doors, please. We need airflow. And somebody needs to tell the people out in the fellowship hall to quit fellowshipping. Oh, my wife. Okay. Never mind. All right. Let's, um, let's pray before we get started. I don't know uh, what kind of things you've been through, but, and I know most of you spent a lot of time praying for a couple of guys and one wife last week, probably two wives, because my wife needed prayer too. But we appreciate that, and we cannot express enough how much we appreciate that. And I know there were a lot of you who were not praying once or twice a day. I know of at least one family that set the alarm to go off every hour on the hour when they prayed for us, and then they would pray for us three or four times in between the, in, in between the alarms. And we appreciate that very much. And I think that we are here and that we had minimal difficulty because of those prayers. And uh, so I acknowledge that, and it has come. One of the things that has come to pass, I know for me, is I'm just praying a whole lot more as I go through the day as a result of that. But tomorrow morning, in case you weren't here earlier for the announcements, those of you, how long wilt thou sleep, O sluggard? A little folding of the hands. Well, if you sleep too much tomorrow morning, you will miss our story. We will begin promptly at 8.30 and go through the ad, uh, adventures that should be reserved for those who are a mite younger. <laughs> you know, when you think about the fact that it could be an air raid drill and you've got a duck in cover and you're over 50 or 60, that's a lengthy process. <laughs> At one point, we heard air raid sirens, and the handler we had from Project Dynamo said, you, you got four seconds to get flat on the ground with your hands over your head. And I said, it's going to take four seconds to even think about how I'm going to get down flat on the ground. <laughs> All right, so let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Our Father, your grace is beyond measure. As Paul says in his closing prayer of Ephesians 3, you have blessed us beyond anything that we could ask or think. And Father, we cannot even begin to probe all that is meant in that phrase of Ephesians 1-3 that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. We barely scratch the surface in this life and there's so much to learn. And Father, as we study difficult passages such as Matthew 24, it, it should be taken not that revela your revelation is confusing, but that we come to the text so often with front-loaded presuppositions that we need to learn how to study better because you have revealed this to us that we may understand it, not for the purpose of clouding the issue or confusing us, but for the issue of clarity, disclosure, and revelation. 
Help us as we think through this passage now, this afternoon, that we may gain a greater understanding. In Christ's name, amen. All right, in my part of this presentation, we're going to begin with Matthew 24, 32, and in a very broad general sweep at the end, we'll cover four parables. Very broadly, because the real interpretive crux comes somewhat earlier. And so for anyone who is a student of prophecy, a student of eschatology, Matthew 24 is and 25, uh, those two chapters are foundational. And as I'm going to point out, they have great implications because of things that are taught by dispensationalists, some people we respect in many ways and in other areas. And yet, if you take their view on this in this chapter that the rapture is here, it leads to some real difficulties in the area of the Christian way of life. And so we have to uh, evaluate this, and I'm doing this in a way where we're comparing basically the two positions that those who hold to a rapture uh, in contrast to those who hold to no rapture in Matthew chapter uh, 24. John Walford, who was the second president of Dallas Theological Seminary and whose area of expertise was in the area of uh, dispensationalism and eschatology, wrote about Matthew chapter 24. It would seem at first glance that illustration and application would not present too many problems of interpretation. And yet in this passage, rather strangely, commentators who are quite similar in their points of view in prophecy have differed considerably in their exposition of the last portion of Matthew 24. Some special problems of interpretation must be taken into consideration in the study of this chapter. So the purpose of this paper, and which is uploaded, and by the way, if you didn't hear the announcement earlier, the slides for this presentation have been uh, uploaded, and you can download them during the break. Oh, you forgot to. Well, maybe you'll have a chance now, but what? I have it. You have it. Very good. Very, very. <laughs> Somebody was listening. Okay. So... This, we're going to try to work through these intricacies of interpretation and summarize the strengths and weaknesses of some of these, uh, some of these various views from those who are within our family, other dispensational, premillennial, pre-tribulational uh, scholars who disagree on these things. So the, the focus here is to give you a tool so that when you get to that point as a pastor or Sunday school teacher and you're trying to teach this, that this can help you work your way through the intricacies of this, of this chapter. Now, the other thing I want to mention is that when I talk about various men who have held to different positions or positions with which I disagree I hold all of these men in the highest of esteem because I have studied under them. I, most of them I have known personally, and I respect their scholarship, but sometimes we just don't come to the same 
conclusions, okay? So this is not unusual to us, although uh, some of these positions are truly disparate and irreconcilable. And Lewis Sperry Chafer had a comment to make about this, and so we are going to... Not, we're not going to go to the Witch of Endor and call him forth to talk to us, but he is going to speak to us. With great hesitation, I rise up in, in opposition to interpretations of men that I have known and loved all my life. The great A.C. Gableland was my very dear bosom friend. I spent many, many hours with him in fellowship and prayer, and so with dear Dr. Ironside also. But both of these men have taught all through their ministry that this is the midnight cry of the church. For those of you who have not uh, been exposed to that interpretation, that is the phrase, the midnight cry, comes out of the first parable, the parable of the ten virgins in Matthew 25, and this has been taken to be the rapture. And that presupposes that the rapture is introduced in Matthew 24. What happens when you introduce the rapture into Matthew 24, and I'll say this many times, is that that means that in many of the cases, not everyone, Dr. Fruchtenbaum is an exception. He sees the rapture there, but he does not take the parables to be related to the church age and the judgment at the Bema seat. But those who are in, involved with uh, many of those in GES, in the Grace Evangelical Society, take this position. And uh, one of the people I'm interacting with a lot in this paper is John Hart, who was a professor of theology at Moody Bible Institute. And he's a, he believes in a grace gospel, but he wrote a three-part uh, article, article that was published in, um, I think it was in Bib Sack. What? It was his, yeah, it was based on his doctoral dissertation. And uh, see, Tommy and I always have had these dialogues at these things, so you just have to get used to us. Um, anyway, that he takes that position, and, and Jeremy was referring to him because he builds it off of his view that there's two questions and it sets up a chiasm. Nobody else sees it, but he builds his whole case for that. Now, not everybody who sees a rapture there builds it on that same foundation, uh, but I'm, I'm interacting with him. But I was really disappointed because about two and a half or three years ago in the Grace in Focus magazine that, that uh, GES puts out, I saw that that Bob Wilkin had written an article on on um, Matthew 24. And see, when I presented this five years ago at the pre pre-trib conference, Bob was sitting out there about five or six, and he's furiously writing notes through the whole thing. He didn't inter not only did he not interact with anything that I said, but he just basically treated John Hart's article as the final word and just summarized it point by point. Now, I was very disappointed in that, uh, and actually that's how a lot of people handle disagreement is they just ignore the person who's asked too many questions they can't answer. They just act like their position doesn't exist. So 
What are the presuppositions of my study? Everybody should recognize and admit that they have certain presuppositions when they are expressing their their uh, their view. So the presuppositions of this study are, first of all, a consistent futurist dispensational premillennial pre-tribulationism. I'm not interacting with anybody who is post-trib, anybody who is covenant, anybody who's amil, anybody who's coming at a, from a liberal perspective. This is all com- trying to work our way through the disagreements that occur within our close close family. Second, to God's plan for mankind, since the call of Abraham includes one plan for Israel and Old Testament saints and a distinct plan for the church age and church age believers. Third, Matthew is a Jewish-focused gospel with a Jewish background Christian audience. Uh, Fourth, he is answering specifically Jewish background uh, questions. And lastly, The Olivet Discourse is our Lord's message, which then explains the impact of that rejection of the kingdom on God's plan for Israel in in the future. So I charted this out this way. There are basically two views when you come to the end of Matthew 24 and into Matthew 25 in terms of of, uh, hermeneutics. The first is that on the left side that there is the rapture there in the middle of this particular passage, and the other is that there's no rapture. One of the things I learned when I gave this at pre-trib, because there's a lot of folks who come to pre-trib who have a background in Calvary Chapel or background from the left coast somewhere in California or somewhere over there, and I discovered that if you have a background over there, you've never heard that the rapture's not in the Olivet Discourse. But if you're in God's country in Texas, (laughs) you've never heard that the rapture was in Matthew 24. So maybe it has something to do with regional distinctives. So anyhow, uh, if you take a rapture view, this will lead to three different ways in handling the parables. There are those who see the parables as judgment on church-age believers at the Bema Seat. Secondly, there are those who see two parables as judgment on church-age believers at the Bema Seat and two parables on the survivors of the tribulation. So this is sort of an A-B-A-B pattern. And then there are those that see the three parables as judgment on Gentile survivors of the tribulation. And that would relate to also there are those who don't see the rapture there and see the parables as judgment on Gentile survivors of the tribulation. Then if you, another view by those who do not see the rapture there is that the three parables are judgments on survivors of the tribulation. And then the third view on the far right is a judgment on Jewish survivors of the tribulation. And then the fourth one, which is not a parable, is the uh, sheep and the goat judgment. So we need to ask these questions. What are the fundamental hermeneutical differences? Second question is how is the discourse divided? And these two views are present there. If you see that the major division occurs in uh, Matthew 24:32 with the fig tree parable, you will end up without a rapture in Matthew 24. If you see the peri day at the beginning of Matthew 
2436, which in the New King James is translated, but of that day, some versions may translate it now concerning. Jeremy addressed this uh, very well in his uh, in his presentation. Then you will see a rapture in the uh, in the Matthew 24. So we're going to look at also ask what are the specific critical exegetical issues, and fourth, how does the understanding of Matthew 24:36 to 42 impact the interpretation of Matthew 24:43 to 25:46? Now I'm just going to hit the high points at the end there very briefly on those things. So there's two broad differences. In this interpretation, there's the rapture view on the one hand that the rapture occurs and is described at the beginning there with one is taken and one left behind. And then the no rapture view, which sees that the one taken is not taken at the rapture, but taken in judgment. And the one left behind is left behind to enter into the, enter into the kingdom. Okay, so the important thing here is to remember context. Now, I'm not taking a swig of coffee, just water, but this is my new favorite mug. On this, you like that, don't you? Yeah, yeah, he's got one too. On this it says, I can do all things through a verse taken out of context. I remember having a professor of military science, actually he was a commandant, telling me, you know, in the King James Version, you can take any verse and make it mean anything. And I was too young and dumb to understand what what he was saying, but that's what he was saying. You can take just any verse out of context and make it mean anything. And so it is context, context, context. In real estate, the three laws of real estate are location, location, location. That's just context. And everybody knows that when you take the text out of context, you're left with a con. <laughs> so we need to make sure that we really do understand what the context is so that we can accurately understand uh, everything. So we are going to uh, take a look at, as we look at this, we're going to look at these broad contextual issues in the hermeneutical framework and then we are going to a- analyze the structural uh, issues. So the first thing is we have to look at the far context. How is this section related to the argument of Matthew? Now, Jeremy did an outstanding job uh, developing that. And then the second question on context is uh, the near context. What is it exactly that the disciples are asking? And Jeremy, again, did an outstanding job with that. But what we see is there among some, not all, but among some who see the rapture in the passage, they want to build that on a very specific interpretation. There's only two and only two, and that's John Hart and a lot of people in the in GES that follow him, is that that if it's two questions, it's chiasm, and if it's a chiasm, then you can find the rapture there. And I think that's very, very weak. Jeremy said, too often a study of the discourse begins with Matthew 24 rather than the argument of the Gospel of Matthew. 
When taken apart from the entire argument, one similarity, word, phrase, or concept can be used to present a seemingly strong case for portions of the discourse referring to events in the church age. However, taken inside Matthew's argument, these points begin uh, to break down. Now, what I'm going to do as we go through this is that we are going to um, look at and compare and contrast the two views. So as we see in this slide, it's titled the rapture view. So I'm going to present what their argument basically is, and then we will go to the no rapture view. So we'll get a nice comparison and contrast. So the first area that we're looking at is the area of context. In the rapture view, there is no discussion that I found related to context. In reading all of the things that I could get my hands on from their view where they find rapture in the passage, there is no discussion of how it fit, how this passage is to be uh, how the interpretation of this passage is to be affected by the far context or the near context. And because it is so absent, it is conspicuous. Because when you come to the no rapture view, nearly everyone spends a lot of time talking about both the far context in terms of how it fits with the overall structure and argument of the book of Matthew and also the near context in terms of relating it to the surrounding uh, chapters. And so I have here a quote that the key to understanding the Olivet Discourse is to interpret it consistently, noting the context and the Jewish understanding of the phrase, the end of the age, uh, importing the church into this distinctly Jewish discourse confuses the interpret the interpretation and so this is something that is uh, very very important for us um, to understand this quote is from Ron Bagalki so the far context what are we understanding in terms of the far, far context the first point is that this it, we must emphasize the Jewish nature of Matthew Part of Matthew's purpose is to explain that Jesus did not bring in the prophesied kingdom of God at his first coming because of Israel's rejection and their apostasy. And as a result, the kingdom was postponed. What's interesting is we have a lot of people today who talk about the uh, already not yet view of the kingdom. And in Daniel 7, around 24, 25, or 26, when the Son of Man is coming, what we're told is the kingdom is first taken from the little horn before it's given to the Son of Man. That is a critical passage because if that is true, and that's a first-class condition, if that is true, then we can't be in any form of the kingdom today because it hasn't yet been taken from the Antichrist because he hasn't shown up yet to our knowledge. Some people may think he's hiding in Moscow somewhere, but that's another story. (laughs) All right, so the issue here is what is Jesus talking about or more specifically about whom is Jesus teaching? 
And the answer to this is found in the as found in the context is he's talking to believing Israel. Second thing is the centrality of the context. We must understand that above all, determination of meaning in words or syntax is determined by context. And so covenant theologian Moises Silva, who writes on hermeneutics, states, and I find as more and more that I study scripture and language, that meaning is determined by the context, not by the lexicon. It's determined by its use in context. So he says the context does not merely help us understand meaning. It virtually makes meaning. So context is extremely important. The third thing is that the Jewish kingdom is the focal point in the five discourses. And Jeremy covered that quite well, has a good slide. And if any of you teach Matthew, you need to go to that slide and use that. All of these discourses are related to is, relate Israel to the Messianic kingdom. The fourth thing is that there's no foundation for introducing the rapture or the future church. Now, if you go into a law court and you start to argue a case, one of the common objections you see on television is no foundation. You have to lay the foundation for what you're developing. And there's no foundation here whatsoever for talking about the rapture because the rapture is related to the church. Now, it is true that the only one of the four Gospels that uses the word ecclesia, is for, which is the Greek word for church, is Matthew, and it's used twice in Matthew. In Matthew 16, 18, and Matthew 18, 17. And so when you look at this, in Matthew 16, 18, he is asked Peter, who do men say that I am? And Peter says, uh, that, well, some say this and some say that. And, and then Peter says, says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, and on this, what? I will build future tense my church. But it doesn't define church, does it? And so it doesn't give us any meaning to that word. And it was probably understood by the disciples as he's just talking about uh, some assembly that he was going to establish. There's no real, they, nothing's been said to give meaning or content to ecclesia at that point. And Matthew 18, 17 is in the passage a lot of people go to for church discipline. It's talking about if there's a problem between you and somebody else in the assembly. And so there it's probably talking about the synagogue. So we really don't have any development of the church or revelation of the church at all. And since Matthew is all about the um, uh, the future, when the kingdom will come and when the Messiah returns at the second coming, then what's the foundation for suddenly discovering the rapture in in Matthew chapter 24? So there's no foundation whatsoever for introducing that at this at this time. Fifth, there's a teaching on the second coming is more contextually satisfying than teaching on the church. For example, when you when you look at Matthew twenty four thirty seven, uh, where where Jesus says, "But as it, the days of Noah were, so also will future tense the coming of the Son of Man be." 
and he uses the word parousia. And parousia is not... It's not a technical term for either the rapture or the second coming. It could refer to either one, but it's obvious in the context that it's first used in verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. That's not the rapture. That's talking about the second advent. And so contextually, the word parousia that's used three times and verse 27, 37, and then 39, uh, where again it's compared to the time of the flood, uh, this all refers to the second coming. Everything up to uh, verse 32 is clearly understood to be talking about the second coming and not the rapture. So it it just contextually uh, fails on the basis of vocabulary. Six, the no rapture view holds that in Matthew 24 to 25, Jesus is addressing the future for Israel and the church and the church age teach, and the church and the church age teaching just is not present. Uh, Bogaki says, the Olivet Discourse does not refer to the church age, so it does not discuss the timing of the rapture. Furthermore, there is a quote here from, I have a quote here from Dwight Pentecost, Dr. P, as we called him. He says, let us note concerning this great eschatological discourse that Jesus was here revealing the prophetic program for for Jerusalem, the nation Israel and the people of Israel. He made no reference to the church or the prophetic program for the church. Jesus did not speak here of events that will precede the consummation of the program for the church at the rapture. Rather, he dealt with the future tribulation or seven-year period that will complete the prophetic program for Israel as revealed in Daniel 9.27. Because of its Jewish context, this portion of Scripture must be interpreted with reference to Israel and not the church. And then Larry Pettigrew chimes in and says the Olivet Discourse gives us an outline of the future of Israel, a people at the center of much of biblical eschatology. And again, he says the disciples ask him three questions about the future of Israel. Well, wait a minute, I thought there were two. Somebody else said there were four. There's no agreement on this on either side as to how you divide up the question. So to come along and try, as Hart does, to base it on the fact that there are only two questions here and they form a chiasm is exegetically suspect. So we're looking at this far far section, and under the seventh point, one other argument for the Jewish nature of the discourse is that Matthew 24 follows a uh, typical Jewish narrative style where it starts off with an overview and then it shifts to a more specific orientation, such as Genesis chapter 1 gives us the seven days of creation, and then Genesis 2 comes back and focuses on the sixth day and the creation, how God created male and, and, and female. So Matthew 24, uh, 4 through 31, provides a general chronology of Daniel's 70th week. And I go along with, uh, with Jeremy 
that you have the first half in verse down to ver, uh, from four to eight, and then verse nine says, "Then they will deliver you up to tribulation." Nine through fourteen is the second half. That's all broad overview. Then he comes back in that more specific look at the midpoint. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation in verse 15, and then we see this focal point there and gives us a much more detail that leads up to the coming of the Son of Man in verse, verse 29. So this lays that groundwork. So what's the evaluation? The greatest weakness for the rapture view is there's a lack of contextual work, which clearly affects later conclusions in word studies and in structure. Well, let's hear from Dr. Chafer again, since we are focused on Chafer Theological Seminary. I heard a man give an address on the second coming of Christ, and he was talking about the church and the rapture, a man who lives in this city, and he just gathered up all these passages as arguments for the church to be watching. Now, let's settle it and have it Definitely settled. We've not a thing here addressed to a Christian. Not one thing addressed to a Christian. It's all to Israel. We've missed very much indeed when we go through the Gospel of Matthew if we do not discover what is true about the kingdom and what is true about Israel in relation to the kingdom. Matthew is not life truth for the Christian at all. It's not addressed to the Christian. And whether, whenever it is appropriated that way, it's just full of confusion and contradiction. Yeah, he re- that's what I was thinking. He is so ambiguous and wishy-washy. He, he, he had no certainty whatsoever of what the text said. Okay, so we're looking at... at at these two questions of the far context and the near context, and we've looked at that, and the other side, the rapture view, does not discuss this at all. I just find that on the surface to be suspect. Second thing is the question that Jeremy addressed and did a, did a very fine job of, uh, what are the disciples asking? And uh, Wes Spradley uh, writes in a paper that he presented at a GES conference. Uh, he said, um, if we do not understand the when concerning which our Lord speaks, we will not see the rapture in Matthew 24. Rather ambiguous sort of statement. Um, so that leads to the question of how many, how many questions are the disciples asking? And this is really only significant in terms of the one position by John Hart, but because he wrote it for his dissertation and it was published uh, when it came out in uh, the, uh, excuse me, I said earlier uh, uh, BIPSAC, but it's the uh, Jotkis, the Journal of the Grace Evangelical Society in 2007. And he based a lot of what he said on uh, the position that Zane Hodges held. Now, I have great respect in a lot of ways for Zane because he was he taught me baby Greek, and he also had some other things. But you've got to be real careful with Zane. We knew that even as students at Dallas. He was one of, one of a number of people I could mention you'd be familiar with 
that had the reputation of if there were four positions, the one that most people did not take was the one he would fight to the death for. Okay? I had a pastor like that one time, but we'll move on. <laughs> Matthew, Matthew 24, 3 said, Now as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So the, the, these things really are what he has said about the destruction of the temple. And so what they come along and say, those who follow heart, uh, advocate that there are two questions which form the concrete foundation for their chiasm theory. But other rapture advocates emphasize three questions. It all depends on how you kind of look at the, at, the, um, at, the, at, at the grammar. So question one would be, what is the sign of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple? And as Jeremy pointed out, that is not answered by Matthew. It is answered by Luke. Question number two, what is the sign of your coming or what is the sign that the second coming is about to occur? And Jeremy also did a good job that, that it's like the lightning flashing from the east to the west, and that is specifically identified in this particular, in this particular passage. And then the third question is, what is the sign of the end of the age? And as he's... And he cited, said this, but he didn't give the source. Now, one of the great privileges that both Jeremy and I have is that we proctor two courses that some of you are taking. One is on Yeshua, the life of the Jewish Messiah. That's the one I proctor that Dr. Fruchtenbaum taught. And the other one is Israelology, and Jeremy, um, Jeremy teaches that. And in in that uh, the Messiah course, uh, Dr. Fruchtenbaum says that what the disciples are asking is what is the sign that this age is about to end and the age to come? Because the Jews spoke of two ages, this age, meaning the present age, and then the future age, which is the Messianic age. That was their basic basic understanding, and he got that because he's been reading Dr. Fruchtenbaum a lot, as I have. So what are these disciples asking? There's a quote that I just had there. According to Wes Spradley, he says, but the point of the when question, the first question, is not to ask when does the tribulation end, but when does the tribulation begin? Now, I scratch my head at that because they want to know when these things will be, and Jesus just talked about the destruction of the temple. So they're reading things or making things up into the passage. So he says, rather, our, at the conclusion, rather our Lord's answer to the when question concerns when will all these things, that is, all the events of the tribulation happen. Problem we often have is if we ask the wrong question, we get the wrong answer, and that can set us down a wrong road of interpretation. And I'm not going to ask for a show of hands as to who has done that, but um, I could say a show of hands who hasn't done that. Okay, nobody held their hand up because we've all done that, okay? 
So this is what, what happens. This is uh, John Hart's view and Zane Hodge's view is you have this chiasm and you have uh, the two questions, A and B, and then the two answers, B2 and then A2. Um, and so the focal point is in the middle. And so this is how he, he builds it. And basically what he is doing here, notice that uh, on question uh, one, when will these things happen? And question two is, what will be the sign of your coming? And so the way they see this is, when will the Lord return? Because they see that the that, that this is really um, talking about the rapture. And the rapture, as he said, in that double eminency view, the rapture starts the tribulation. And so they're front-loading it with their, uh, their position. And then Dr. Fruchtenbaum points out, which has great value, it should also be noted that Yeshua did not answer the questions in the order in which they were asked. He answered the third question first, the first question second, and the second question last. Furthermore, not all three gospel writers recorded all of his answers to all three questions. Mark and Matthew both ignored Yeshua's answer to the first question while Luke chose to record it. So that's valuable observation. So actually, when you look at the no rapture view, our answer is that the number of questions is not a hermeneutical factor in their argument. And yet that's, that's where they put most of the basket in which they put most of their eggs. Uh, Dr. P, Dr. Pentecost, uh, says the first question, which is answered second, is understood to be a question about when the temple will be destroyed. Okay? Walverd, as just one example, argues for this position, as does Pentecost. Paraphrase, that's, this is my comment. Walverd, as just one example, argues for the position as a Pentecost, paraphrasing the question, when will this happen, as when will Jerusalem be destroyed? Dr. Toussaint. Uh, I remember taking, what was it, Tommy, Acts and General Epistles, and we had... We sat up there. We always sat together right in front of the lectern. He, he, um, he says this means that the first term, first time the term is used in the New Testament, it probably includes a Jewish religious sense of the appearance of the Messiah to deliver. He's explaining the meaning of parousia, it is used with a Jewish context, and which understood it to refer to the appearance of the Messiah to deliver Israel. He goes on to say, if this is so, it gives the whole discourse in Matthew 24 an especially Jewish slant. In a word, the questions of the disciples are completely Jewish and have nothing to do with the church. The disciples did not grasp the significance of the church at this point. They only gradually began to understand how God was building his church as the book of Acts attests. The questions of the disciples are not only related to Israel, they form the basis for the entire discourse. So let's have an evaluation. Okay. The chiasm theory is based on the much disputed issue of the number of questions. This is a weak foundation to base the whole position on a highly disputed issue. Second, the no-rapture view appears contextually stronger. This view recognizes the context, that context has no base, the context has no basis for introducing the church or the pre-trib rapture. 
This view emphasizes that that the when question is related to when the temple will be destroyed, not when will the day of the Lord begin. Third, the argument set forth by Toussaint and Pentecost provides evidence from both a far and near context that restricts the entire discourse to a focus on God's plan for Israel, thus showing that there is no foundation for introducing either the church or the rapture, uh, which is a distinctively church-age doctrine. Then fourth, nothing comparable to the Toussaint and Pentecost line of reasoning or answer to their line of reasoning exists within the literature of the rapture view proponents. They seem to have a pattern of ignoring that which doesn't fit their preconceived notions. And then fifth, somebody's phone's going off, when will these things be? In the immediate context, our Lord has announced at one, their house, the temple, is left to you desolate. And the word eremos can mean either abandoned or deserted. And second, that they would not see him again until they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the third, that not one stone shall be left here uh, upon another. And, and so the, the plural of these things refers to these three things which Jesus says will happen. Specifically, when these things happen to the temple and the people call upon you, these things occur, these things all occur at the conclusion of Daniel's uh, 70th week. That's on this slide. It seems forced to claim that they refer to the beginning of the seven year period, as one writer puts it. The disciples were asking Jesus how they could know when these end of the age events began i.e., when the day of the Lord begins, which in his view is the rapture. That's rewriting the initial question. Rollin Chafer, let's not ignore Dr. Chafer's brother. He said in an article, or in a syllabus rather, on the study of hermeneutics, he said, It is true that sound interpretation must begin with the grammatical uh, sense of the text. And this does indeed hold first place in the rules for interpretation. Nevertheless, it is possible to trot all day in, in a grammatical half bushel and fail to get the great sweep of the meaning of the broad context. Hence, there are other rules presented in a later section which safeguard against an overemphasis of grammatical considerations. In other words, what he is said, saying is you can spend all day long looking at, the, at, at lexical studies and at grammatical studies, but if you ignore the broad context, you're going to end up with the wrong conclusion. Okay, It's important to recognize that as important as original language study is, as important as grammatical and syntax study is, and you know I sometimes like to refer to those things, context is the determinative issue. So we, he recognized that. So now we got another uh, structural issue, and these are two important points that have to be discussed. First of all, what, if anything, is the significance of the peri-day uh, uh, for the structure of the Olivet Discourse? Now, 
Um, this is Matthew twenty four thirty six, and it begins in the New King James, but of that day and hour no one knows. And in the um, uh, a better translation of that might be now uh, concerning. And Jeremy did a good job going through this, that Paul used this in 1 Corinthians as he was answering questions that had been asked of him by the Corinthian believers. And so he would start each answer indicating a new section, a new answer to a question with Perry Day. But not every author uses it that way. Uh, that was Paul's style, but it wasn't uh, Matthew's style, and it may not have been our Lord's style. So the Perry Day is what the rapture people emphasize, that this is the major structural change and they will say this changes the subject. Now, I have a, some criticism of that to bring, but that's, that's basically what they're trying to say. And, this, and, and those who hold to a no rapture see that the shift occurs not in verse 36, but back in verse 32. Now, learn this parable from the fig tree, because after, after the chronology has been established in verses 1 through 31, there are going to be these parables that the Lord tells that are applying the lessons from that chronology. So those who hold to a rapture view emphasize the use of the Greek transitional phrase at the beginning of 2436 as a major element in their argument. This phrase is usually translated, but of the day, or but concerning that day in the ESV, or but as for that day in the NET. So let's make some observations. The use of Perry Day at the beginning of a sentence introduces a new subject. I think this is heart statement. What slide am I on? This is just a summary of their argument. This is indeed based on Hart, and he cites the preterist R.T. France in his commentary on Matthew to support his view. Uh, the use of Perry Day at the beginning of the sentence introduces a new subject. Thus, our Lord is shifting from discussing the second coming to a different event, the pre-trib rapture of the church. documentation for this he cites or what look at that it's almost all first corinthians passages and then two verses from first thessalonians this is paul style but it's not matthew style and he argues that the analogy with first corinthians shows that it's a shift of subject here the evaluation of this is the problem is with the ambiguous definitions and descriptions that he offers he says, verse 36 is introduced by Perry Day. This Greek phrase is widely recognized as beginning a shift in subject or perspective. Now, pay attention. It's late in the afternoon. You're tired. I'm tired. Who knows what we're going to get out of this? <laughs> so the question here is, when he says, it's a shift in subject or perspective. Is he saying that subject and perspective are synonyms where perspective is just another way of saying subject? 
Or is he indicating two different things, a shift in subject or a shift in perspective? Now, that's an interesting thing to pay attention to. We have to clarify this this particular term because later on when he summarizes his view in his third part of the series, he defines this Perry Day as a slight shift in perspective. Now, an illustration might help. So let's say we are getting close to Christmas and we're anticipating all of the cooking that has to take place in order to prepare the Christmas menu. And I am one who both likes to eat and I like to cook because I like to eat better food than you can buy prepared at the store. So I like to investigate various... I don't bake anymore because my waistline can't handle that. But if we were to... Let's say we were going to try to bake a good chocolate cake. And so you begin to list all of the different ingredients as you're describing how to bake the cake. And you had two cups of flour, two cups of sugar, and three-quarters cups of unsweetened cocoa powder. And you follow the list, and then I want to continue to write about the subject of the recipe for the chocolate cake. But I want to focus our attention on one aspect Okay, I've got, I'm, I'm not talking about how to bake a pie now. I'm still talking about that same subject, but I'm going to hone in on one thing, and I'm going to say now concerning the kind of chocolate you ought to use. So we're going to talk about having really good chocolate. That's a change of perspective. I haven't changed the subject to talk about a pie or talk about a cobbler. So when he says a change of subject or a change of perspective and then treats them as the same thing, he's vague on what he's talking about. So when we are talking about, we go through the recipe for the dessert, and then I'm going to talk about what we're going to have for the main course. Then I would use Perry Day, and Perry Day in that context would be shifting from one subject to another subject, Okay. So he's vague when he talks about this. Is he beginning of a subject or perspective, and then he treats them as the same, as the same thing. And so this this leads to a problem. We have to investigate this. Richard Mayhew from Master's Seminary observes that Perry Day is used 18 times in the New Testament, and in all but four cases, an obvious change in time or topic is implied. And then he lists Matthew twenty two thirty one, twenty four thirty six, Mark twelve twenty six, and thirteen thirty two. What's interesting here is there are there are three passages in Matthew where he uses Perry Day, and in these uses of Perry Day, there's other three. There's four in uses in Matthew. The other three, uh, none of those are cited by the Rapture people as evidence for their understanding of Perry Day as a change in subject. Now, that's telling because Matthew doesn't use it to indicate a change in subject. He uses it in different ways. So Matthew uh, 20, verse 6, and about the 11th hour, he went out and found others standing, uh, standing idle and said to them, 
And so in Matthew 26, the context is a kingdom of heaven parable of the day, day laborers. And as the story progresses, we learn of a landowner who hires laborers early in the morning at the third hour, again at the sixth hour, and then the ninth hour. And when he hires the final group at the 11th hour, the statement is made, and about the 11th hour. So he's been talking about the hours, and now he's honing in on a specific. It's a change in perspective, but not a change in topic. Matthew 22:31 does the same thing. You can read these. I want to. I'm not ever going to get anywhere. I've got 16 pages of 36, <laughs> and I want to go eat dinner. Okay. So you can go through those examples, but Matthew doesn't use Perry Day to change subject. He uses it to hone in on a different perspective. So we have to understand this. So the the conclusion for this is, though the argument from Perry Day at first glance appears substantive, closer examination reveals some fundamental uh, flaws in both the logic and the evidence. Arguments that Perry Day indicates a shift in topic in Matthew are less than convincing. That's a polite academic way to express the fact that they just don't get you anywhere. Okay, the function of the fig tree parable. The rapture view says it's the conclusion to the first part and sets up the shift to the rapture. The no rapture view says it's the transition to the next section, which is characterized by parables and illustrations. So you have the parable of the fig tree, and then you have the faithful and wise servant coming up, and then the parable of the wise and foolish virgins, the parable of the talents. So it seems like the shift occurs between 31 and 32, where now we're talking about illustrations and, and application. The rapture view says we've already considered some of the markers that indicate that the fig tree passage is the conclusion to our Lord's answer to the what question. The no rapture advocates indicate by their outline that Matthew 24:32 is the main uh, division. In the no rapture view, there's little said about this, this structure except in a few commentaries. However, of those that do, several of them divide the discourse at at verse 32 and have titles for the following sections such as seven illustrations of his coming, parenthetical exhortations, the responsibilities of the disciples, confirmation by parables, and parabolic admonition. So that's how they understand this as parables and illustration. So there's a shift to the use of parables and illustrations in 24, 32, that is not 32 to 25, that is 32 to 35. And the parable of the fig tree, the illustration from Noah, the brief parable or illustration of the homeowner, the parable of the wise servant, all of these uh, fit together. So the fig tree parable teaches that the person alive at the time should be watching. That's the whole point here. Uh, Learn this and watch. Be watchful. Focus on that. Uh, You see that... Uh, The purpose for the comparison with Noah is stated in Matthew uh, 24, 32. Now learn um, so you know when that summer is near. So you're being watchful. You're looking for that fact that it's near in verse 33. It's at the doors. It's structurally vital to see the echo in Matthew 25, 13, Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man coming, 
Matthew 24:42, watch therefore you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. So Matthew 24:42 and then Matthew 25:13 uh, get bracket that particular section. So the rapture position interprets the point of comparison in the Noah, Noah illustration as a normal lifestyle. So let's let's look at this. But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. What's the point of comparison? Verse 38 says, starting with a four, an explanation, as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. What kind of marrying was going on prior to the flood? <laughs> Genesis 6-2. The sons of God, that is the fallen angels, saw the daughters of men that they were beautiful and they took wives for themselves of all whom they chose. Now we could say a lot about that and get really distracted, but the point is that you have a perverted degradation in the culture prior to the flood. That's why they had the flood. This is not normal marriage. This is not just having a nice little happy birthday party or an anniversary party or something like that. Jesus is saying, compare it to what's going on before the flood. That was perversion and degradation. That's what's going to be going on before the return of Christ. Remember what happens at the midpoint of the tribulation? The two witnesses are executed. Three days later, they're going to be resurrected. But what's happening in those three days? They're having a three-day-long party worldwide. They're having a great celebration. So it's a time of perversion and degradation. So this isn't talking about uh, everybody going along and all of a sudden, whoo, surprise, the rapture occurred. Oh, we were just all being normal. No, they were being Abby normal. <laughs> just for those of you who watched Frankenstein. Okay. So, and then they make an issue out of the fact, well, they didn't know until the flood came. Well, the reason they didn't know is they were willfully suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. It's not because they weren't told. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, and so he gave the verbal expression and warning of, of that particular thing. Now, I don't have time to go into what I have left here on terms of the Iro and Paralambano. Uh, their argument is basically that uh, these two words, the shift from Iro took them all away to will be taken, that that shows that those taken are not taken in judgment, but taken in the rapture, and those not taken are left or abandoned to go through, uh, through the rapture. But the no rapture view says the point of the illustration is to be watchful. Matthew twenty four forty two. Watch, therefore. Just read the text. Watch, therefore. That's what we're talking about. The lack of knowledge is not that they're unaware, but they're willfully ignorant. So in terms of an evaluation, their argument about Paralambano ignores lexical evidence. And the point of the illustration of normality is to watch. 
it's not a normal situation there to be the believers are to be be watchful that is the believers in the um in the tribulation period so little seems to be said in, uh, to argue contextually that the point of comparison is normality they just assume it's normality that's what i've always heard whenever i hear people go through the passage either side they just assume this is everyday normality but it if we look at the kind of marriages that are going on before the the flood this is not normality it's it's very different second the concluding admonition is to watch therefore and be ready that's what it's all about in the fifth point i pointed out the difference in the word studies and then i have a whole section in there because uh, uh, they rely heavily or at least Hart relies heavily on the work of a dallas professor michael burer and he has a number of uh, problems that i point out uh, in the paper related to uh, his word his word studies and so we'll come to a, another comment by Lewis Berry uh, Chafer. And so in connection with the glorious appearing of Christ, those that are taken are taken in judgment, and those that are left are left with a kingdom blessing. But it doesn't mean that this is the church of the rapture at all. Be careful about such foolish mistakes as that. <laughs> I love him. He was great. Okay, so... Regarding the parables, if there's no rapture in Matthew 24, 32 to 44, then the parables all relate to tribulation saints who are alive at the end of the tribulation and being prepared for the coming of Christ. And Revelation 16, 15, Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming as a thief. This is near the end, right before the second coming. I'm coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garment, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. Second, if there is a rapture in Matthew 24, then the parables may relate to the church in the Bema seat of Christ. And then you can get into some real problems. Um, one is I've observed several times the determinative differences reduced to factors of hermeneutics. The rapture advocates give little, to, uh, little or any attention to relating the section to the far context and only limited, if any, attention to the near context. Second, principles of hermeneutics related to lexical studies are also in conflict. Ambiguous and non-standard terms are used to define syntactical categories that are important. Broader discussion must be given to these in order to avoid the indictment of cherry-picking the data. Third, similar issues related to the role of grammar also apply, specifically in the role of syntax and grammar in the overall hermeneutic. Fourth, in reading on both sides, I observed some logical fallacies, specifically fallacies related to appeal to authority, question begging, and equivocation. Fifth, more attention should be given on the no-rapture view side to answer objections related to the apparent eminence argument in Matthew 24, uh, 36, which reads, But of that day and hour no one knows not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So that people say, oh, well, no one knows when the rapture is going to be, so that must be the rapture. But that violates everything in the context, so it has to mean something else. We need more work on that. Sixth, for both sides, more granular analysis on the thief in the night imagery needs to be published. And this is used, the thief in the night imagery is used in First Thessalonians 5 and in Second Peter 3 to refer to the second coming. 
Seventh, above all the basis for suddenly introducing a church-age doctrine into the midst of a Jewish-focused, Israel-oriented context and question must be articulated. Simply asserting this, apart from near or far contextual contextual foundation, fails to be convincing. And last, from my analysis to this point, it appears that there that there is a reason the vast majority of dispensational futurists do not see a rapture in Matthew 24. The arguments and evidence for a rapture are not sufficient to warrant such a conclusion. Any questions? Andy, we'll get him a... Here you go. Oh. Yeah, well, you kind of mentioned at the end, but, you know, because I take the same view you have, but what I get thrown at me constantly is verse 36. But of that day or hour, uh, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son of Man, but the Father alone. So the argument is we know, I mean, the second advent occurs exactly seven years after the peace treaty. So, but we don't, how, how could Jesus not right. know? How could the you know the I, angels I, I, not know? Yeah, I think that it says of the day and the hour, no one knows. And there's there's a lot of different explanations that I have read, some of which may hold water, some of which may not. One of which is, and I believe that after the second, um, after the sixth seal judgment, it's pretty much going to wipe out all the power grid, and we're going to be thrown back into a pretty primitive world and so who's going to know what day it is there could be complete confusion and also in daniel it uh the uh, little horn tries to redo the days and dates and come like the french did in the french revolution come up with a new calendar so it could just be that that they're they're just chronologically lost right well that's man's perspective but it says here not even the angels right so that's where i'm i'm yeah, I know. That's why I say this is a this is an issue that needs more work. Right. Okay, uh, John Brummett's back there waving his hand. Robbie. Okay, Cliff. Um, regarding that discussion you just had, I mean, aren't the days cut short? Yeah, that's another good point. Yes. How, how many days? Nobody knows. Maybe yeah, the sun even doesn't doesn't are, even know how many days. The days cut short, so right. it doesn't go the full right. the full time period. John. Thank you. That's excellent. Um, I think another point in Matthew 24 is the phrase son of man. Uh, he takes that from Daniel 7, 13, and 14. Right. It's the son of man returning for his coming. And the parabolic section is used four times. And he always uses that term son of man. The chronology at the end of 24, and then he picks back up the chronology in Matthew 25. Uh, he always always uses that term son of man. So to see a distinct separate coming would not consider the context. Right. Yeah, good point. Yeah. I, w- I would argue what he's saying there is in his incarnation as the son of man, he doesn't okay. know. But as God, in his deity, certainly he would know. Right. Because he right. has to know everything. And I think I think that's the best understanding of that particular passage. Okay. Thank you. Anybody else? There's a question down here. Jacob has a question over here. And then Jeremy. Oh, over there. I got it from 
Thank you. <clears throat> so in view of parables, you know, parables are something. I don't think you're on the, is his sound carrying? He's not on. Hello? Push it all the way up. Hello? Yeah. Okay. Um, so in light of a parable being something thrown alongside to illustrate, wouldn't teaching on that thing being illustrated be required prior to the illustration? So it seems like if that's illustrating the rapture, wouldn't it have to be something taught on right. before? Yeah, so it kind of just point. appears yeah. out of thin air. Yeah. So. And I think that once we get into the parable of fig tree, that is all illustrating and explaining what has been overtly right. taught in the first 31 verses. Right. With the exhortation to be watchful. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I think Jeremy, did you have a question? Andy needs the exercise. I do. I do need it. <laughs> I love you, Andy. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm just bringing up that Hart, I think also, if I'm reading him rightly, wants to give Jesus more credit for the rapture. Like we need more than John 14, 1 through 3. Right. That's so right. He does, sure he does say that, yes. Okay. I'm just making sure he's motivated yeah. maybe to do that. Yeah, in the passage where uh, a lot of post trivers say, you know, where it says he's taken. Um, and in I think Luke 17 version says, you know, they use that for the rapture. Uh, and one of the aspects of the Olivet Discourse. And uh, in Luke 17, I think it says, it uses that phrase, it says, and where are they taken? Yeah. Where the worm dieth not. Yeah. You know, right. in other words, that is talking about people being taken uh, to hell, taken in essence. To, yeah. But they try to use that for being taken where it doesn't have that right. qualifier. Right. They're taken to heaven. And, right. Right. That, Instead that you're of taken, taken in the judgment. rapture. One last question. Brett's way, raving. He's got a one-way Jesus way of focusing on the question. Uh, no, I was just wondering, have uh, you guys considered the view that the ones that are taken are the ones that are referred to in Matthew thir- in Mark 13, where he says, Then he will send forth his a- the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds and from the farthest ends of the earth to the well, farthest you, end of heaven. Yeah, if you look contextually at Matthew 24, 39, let me, I'll read 38. In the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know. Who did not know? The ones who were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage. They did not know until the flood came and took them all away. Who's being taken away? The ones who are being taken away are the partygoers. The ones who have the perverted marriages, they're taken away. Uh, So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And that's true in every Mathean judgment. What you just said is true in every judgment, whether it's sheep and goat, uh, Matthew 13, you know, being left behind is, uh, is uh, a good thing. Yeah, in that passage. Yeah, which the, the rapture is the opposite. Yeah. 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 All right. Let's uh, close out. It's 432, so it is uh, actually on my Apple Watch. It's at right at 430. We will reconvene tonight at uh, 7.30 and our evening worship service. And I have one announcement here. Thank you for reminding me, Cheryl. 
Wayne House has added some free books to the free book table out here in front to my right where you come in the what is technically the front door of the church. That's where Bruce Baker's books were. So free books. It's grace. I always knew I always knew Wayne had a had a heart for grace. What? 630 choir oh, six thirty choir practice. Thank you, Matt. Six thirty choir practice. Okay, Father, we thank you for this uh, opportunity, this last session to dig into Matthew twenty-four. Thank you for all of those who are here and their desire to know your word. And Father, may we always hunger and thirst for your word and for truth and for righteousness in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.